Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, back hosting one of these remotely recorded Truth and Movies episodes. It's been a long time, right? But we're back, and I'm thrilled to welcome back with me Adam Woodward. Hello. And Hannah Woodhead. Hello. Very quickly, guys, how are you doing? Adam, how's it been? It's been a long time. It's been a while. I think the last time we were on together was uh, the Movie Soundtracks podcast we did, which was... Way back, I think, maybe during the first lockdown, mm-hmm. which feels, I mean, probably only a few months ago, but it feels like a lifetime. Um, so it's a pleasure to be back podding with you today. The, the, the pleasure's mutual. Hannah, also love to speak to you again. You, you're currently up north, right? Yeah, so I have decamped from uh, from London to Sheffield um, because I didn't want to do another lockdown in London. So I'm um, living on my mum's sofa until January now, uh, which is presenting its, you know, unique set of challenges, especially when it comes to recording a podcast. Um, Listeners will be delighted to know that it took me a good, like, 15 minutes to find a microphone that would work in this house. And there is currently a man fitting new windows in our house. So if you hear any kind of drilling and banging... It's the double glazing men, so I apologise for that. I mean, it's all part of the the lockdown colour, isn't it? Also, you have cats, so that's the good that's the good part. We might hear cats on this recording. Yeah, you may hear um, my cat. I I got we we do have um, family cats who kind of are roaming around the house, but they're not allowed in the living room, which is where I am. But my new cat, Margot. Um, is in the living room, <laughs> so if at any point I kind of exclaim loudly it's it might be because we've made a great point about david fincher but it's probably because the cat has jumped on me um so again yeah <laughs> apologies for all the 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 uh quote-unquote color that i am bringing to this podcast so i must ask is margot named after margot at the wedding margot tenenbaum or margot dunn from you, gone girl you know i got an i got an instagram dm asking if she was named after margot robbie um and i it hadn't even occurred to me that there is a very famous Margot. Um, it was actually after Margot Tenenbaum from the Royal Tenenbaums because she's um, much like uh, Margot Tenenbaum. She's a little a little lady who knows her own mind. So, mm-hmm. Well, we've literally let the cat out of the bag there in terms of today's <laughs> topic. We're talking about the films of David Fincher in anticipation of his new film Mank, which is going to be on Netflix from the 4th of December. Of course, the new issue of Little White Lies is a Manx special as well. Adam, can you tell us a little bit about what's in the new issue? I can do, yeah. We've got um, a, a pretty meaty interview with the man himself. 
um, which the the other David David Jenkins has has done, and that's a really really cracking read. We've also gone deep on the history of Citizen Kane, but kind of looking at the people involved in the film, which maybe didn't get the credit they would deserve. Like famously, Herman Mankiewicz, you know, although he won this Oscar, he he's sort of relegated to the footnotes of history as far as the film is concerned. So I, I did a little piece excavating some of the um, unsung heroes of that film. Um, and yeah, there's loads more beside. I think it's a really it's a really good issue. Um, really pleased with this one. That's really exciting. Unfortunately, in England, at least, we can't go and buy the issue on store shelves. But where can we get it from? LWLies.com? LWLies.com. And if you subscribe, obviously, that's that's the kind of quickest and easiest way to get the mag. Um, I think it is actually on a few shelves somewhere, like WH Smith's um, seems to be open for the most part here still, mm-hmm. um, having now been deemed to be an essential uh, shop, which is nice. And yeah, we're, we're selling it. I think this issue, we're going to, keep it on shelves for a bit longer just to give people the chance to buy it. Lovely. We'll be talking in detail about Mank in a future episode. For this episode, we're going to look at a broader view of David Fincher. We've each brought a Fincher film to talk about in a, in a sort of show and tell style. But before we dive in, let's have a listen to a trailer from Mank. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is why you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey?
that was the trailer for Mank going up on Netflix on the 4th of December. And I think in some cinemas, if you're outside of England, where cinemas may still be open. And, and some, talk... some cinemas are going to show it when they reopen. I know the Prince Charles has announced they will be showing it. So just a little shout out. Check your indie cinemas. Ask them if they're going to play it. Give them all the support you can. <laughs> I agree. Good point, Hannah. Yeah, <laughs> check your local listings. So David Fincher. Um, a bit, a big filmmaker, not a very big filmography, only 11 films. I suppose before we dive into our specific picks, I'd like to know what your history with Fincher is. So Adam, I'll come to you first. What was your first Fincher? Do you like him as a filmmaker? Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of my, uh, one of my boys for sure. Um, I think I'm, I'm struggling to think the first film of his I watched, I think I've got a feeling it was probably something like Fight Club, um, I have a vague memory of what of staying up late at night with a friend watching it on like a repeat on Channel 4 or something um, and not really kind of getting it. And I suspect it was one I revisited in on a, like a film studies course at some point. So I think that would have been, I suspect like most people, that, that entry point was one of probably two or three films around that time. So either Seven, Fight Club. Certainly wasn't until much later that I got into... I guess the earlier stuff and, and watch like Alien 3. And yeah, and I mean, since then, it, I've really kind of, you know, he's been pretty consistently one of my favourite filmmakers. I think the first film I properly went to see of his in the cinema would have been Zodiac. Obviously, there's quite a big gap between Panic Room and Zodiac. So I think Zodiac, I, I actually went along on my own and uh, saw it at the Harbour Lights, which is now Picture House down in Southampton. And uh, yeah, I went to a late night screening of that and actually went back two more times that week to see it again because I was just kind of so captivated and, and engrossed by it. Um, and so, yeah, I think my, my love affair, although we'll, we'll, we'll find out soon enough that my pick was not Zodiac. Um, mm -hmm. I think just for the sake of, um, you know, brevity for this podcast, I could, I could talk until the cows come home about that film. So I wanted to sort of switch gears a bit. But yeah, Z Zodiac's the one I seem to always go back to. And that's my, that's really the, the, the great love of mine as far as Fincher is concerned. He's, he's a, a unique filmmaker in a way that two of his films out of his first decade as a feature filmmaker became like rite of passage movies for teenagers. And I sort of grew up in, in the 90s almost along with those films. You know, Seven was a film that I definitely was too young to see on telly when my dad would have been watching it on Sky Movies growing up. And then when you're a super serious, you know, uh, damn the man kind of teenager, Fight Club comes along at almost the perfect point, right? Uh, in, in 2000. But my first Fincher probably was Alien 3. I've, I distinctly remember that film coming out. I remember the video game and I remember the controversy around it, the div divided opinion on it, and then the fact that the Alien Quadrilogy, as it's called, has been released and re-released on all formats multiple times, has given me many times to go back and re-watch it. And of course, we're not going to get into whether the assembly cut of Alien 3 is better than the theatrical, because it is, but also we don't want to litigate over something that could be talked about at length on Twitter. But I think actually the first Fincher I saw at the cinema was probably The Social Network, just because of the timing of it all um he for me he was a vhs dvd filmmaker seven and fight club were in constant rotation it's only been in the social net post social network era of his career that i've seen him on the big screen 
So it's an, an interesting filmmaker, actually. Hannah, not to point to you as the example of youth on our podcast, but did you come to, you must, you naturally came to him a bit later. What was your first venture? Yeah, well, I guess like I, I kind of was exposed to him before I really knew who he was because I watched a lot of like, um, you know, they don't really, I don't know if they really exist anymore, but the, the TV channels that just show music videos. Um, and I kind of like, I would watch those kind of constantly, especially at sleepovers. And he directed a lot of music videos for Madonna. So I kind of had seen, you know, the videos for Vogue and things and been like, wow, these are really cool videos and not realized that it was him behind them. Um, and I think also as well, like Panic Room and um, Seven were kind of on TV a lot in the sort of mid noughties when I was going into my teens. And I think they were kind of like, they were definitely ones that my mum was like, no, you're not watching that. It's too kind of adult for you. Um, so I think I was kind of like subconsciously aware, but obviously the puzzle pieces didn't fall into place until much later. Um, so I think like technically the first one that I really like sat down and watched was was probably Fight Club. Um, I remember doing an essay on it for my um, uh, year nine RE class on, we were, we were doing about free will and I wrote about Fight Club. <laughs> my teacher must've just hated me. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I, I guess from then on, it was kind of, um, uh, that was it. I was absolutely hooked and I still like, I was still, even when Zodiac came out, I was I was definitely too young to see Zodiac when it came out, but I do remember going to see the social network with my friends and obviously like, you know, they had no idea who David Fincher was. I only knew because I'd seen Fight Club and Seven by that point. And I remember the, the scene where um, the big, the Winklevoss twins are rowing the the, uh, the Cambridge regatta and in the Hall of the Mountain King is playing. I remember having this like kind of, transcendental like come to jesus moment where i was just like this is cinema this is this is what it's all about and um i really truly credit him with being like along with the classic bro canon of martin scorsese and quentin tarantino of being like you know the people who kind of got me into film and made me realize that this was something that um i wanted to kind of make a career out of so he's definitely one of one of my boys as as uh, as adam said i um i'm always excited for whatever he's doing i've been kind of waiting and waiting for a new film since gone girl came out so i'm i'm thrilled that he's back in uh, back in action yeah so with that in mind i think it will be quite fascinating we've got we've picked three films from his career here to go in reverse chronological order because he has now got this this reputation where whatever he's going to do next is going to be um, scrutinized it's going to be hyped it's going to be re-watched and rewatched many times but let's go backwards so the first pick hannah is yours could you please introduce us to your pick uh yeah so i have chosen gone girl which uh, obviously was his most recent film or, or last film before before mank i don't really know how to word it um and it was a film that came out when i was working in a cinema so it kind of intrinsically felt like you know special to me because I was there and like you know watching people come and see it and watching how horrified they were in a lot of cases and um it's it means enough to me that I got a tattoo um 
from the film on my body so I feel like that's like a you know that that's all I can say really (laughs) it's you know when it gets to that stage it's clear that a film has a very special place in your heart and although I love like I'm you know I'm sure we'll talk about his other his other films that we haven't picked but um this for me was the one I wanted to rep for when we were deciding and uh yeah I think it's probably for me the like the one I I don't necessarily maybe think it's his best from a technical point of view but like from a all in I like I bought a wholesale point of view it's absolutely my favorite of his films so it was quite divisive with audiences when it was released so you said that you could get the temperature of how it was going down when you were working in the cinema <laughs> were you getting complaints or or what no I I I guess I think I I have a feeling it came out around Valentine's Day um <laughs> and I seem to recall there were a lot of people who went to see it maybe not realizing what they were seeing um and thinking it was going to be a kind of like I know this came out after Gone Girl but it was going to be a kind of like girl on the train type film um where it all kind of is like tied up in a neat little bow which obviously is not that's not never been Finch's modus operandi um so there were a lot of people who I think were just kind of very wrong-footed by it um there were others who absolutely loved it but it was kind of like highly amusing to me as like a you know, jaded 21-year-old to be, like, watching all these people come out of the cinema, like, furious that they'd invested all this time into this film. That It's quite a long film as well by blockbuster standards, which is definitely kind of what it was marketed as. I think they were just a bit surprised at how it all goes down in that film. <laughs> Adam, so th- this would have been during your, your tenure working with Little White Lies. Do you remember how it went down with the critics? Oh, very much so, yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it was one of those, before it was a film, it was one of those books which everyone seemed to be talking about. And um, similar, I think, to something like We Need to Talk About Kevin, it seemed every time you got on a tube or a bus or, you know, Mm. everyone was reading it. And so it became this very hyped book, this hyped novel. Um, And I, I remember, I seem to remember a lot of the talk around the time. I mean, among critics, I think it was generally well liked. And, you know, as, as Hannah said, there's so much impressive craft on display as, as, as you kind of tend to get with Fincher. I remember there was a lot of talk around, um, I guess, the themes of the film and this perceived misogynistic streak within it. It's it's an interesting one to unpick. I think Gillian Flynn, who, who wrote the novel and, and the screenplay, I think so much of the, you know, so many of the interesting facets of the film come down to her screenplay and actually what she what she leaves out from her own novel and what she mm. kind of tweaks slightly. Um, I think, you know, at very much at Fincher's request, um, makes it a more interesting film. And actually, I think makes it a more interesting work all round than the novel, which I think has, you know, has has kind of more obvious flaws in the film. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it is one of those where he hadn't made a film for a few years, you know, he'd gone on this incredible run of making almost a film a year around the kind of mid noughties leading up to um, Social Network and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And then there's a few years off and came back with this. And I think, I think as Hannah says, it wrong footed a lot of people, caught a few people by surprise. You know, Ben Affleck, I don't think his stock was particularly high at the time. Um, you know, this is kind of his pre like Zack Snyder, Justice League comeback. Um, you know, so he he was maybe seen as a bit of a, a, bit of a gamble as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it was maybe one of those films where people's expectations didn't quite align with the end product. 
but it's certainly one which I think has has grown with each year and each each kind of subsequent viewing. Mm-hmm. I think it's become a lot more, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot more rich as a film. Yeah, I, I went back and looked, as I often do when I rewatch films that were quite core celebres at the time, I looked at the letterbox rankings. And of course, so many mutual friends and colleagues had rated it. And it really did, went, goes from the one stars to the five stars. I must say, I, I loved this film. This is having watched maybe six or seven Fincher films in the last week um, in, in anticipation of Mank. This is in this is in the top half, maybe the top four or five for me. It's so slippery. It's so um, it wrong foots you multiple times and it ends on such a darkly comic tone it manages to land this final half hour which is so unexpected and bananas but as you as you say adam it's and, and hannah you both mentioned this where you go into a film like gone girl thinking it's just the story of a crime case a crime procedural maybe something like a zodiac where it's about this missing girl but also in a similar way to zodiac it becomes about the culture around the case as much as the case itself and in this case it's ben affleck's character and his relationship with the media and the press and their their response to him. And then it starts to curdle and change and warp and into something else, mutate into something else as it goes. I'm interested, you know, in, in one of his big interviews in the last week or two, Fincher talks about how he's interested in making a work that looks at cancel culture. There's roots of something like that in here about apologies and the pu- public, you know, the, the, the court of opinion, um, it, it's a really fascinating film. Hannah, what is interesting, looking back at it now, there was a lot of debate at the time about whether it was a misogynistic film, right? Um, and, I, and I'd forgotten about that completely. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I guess, like, when it came out, I remember um, I was in my final year of university and I remember writing about this for the student paper and being kind of, like, baffled by all the kind of claims about misogyny because I, I mean I wasn't a film studies um, undergraduate I was doing English and history so I, I guess I wasn't really I didn't really have a lot of conversations about films with people and I just didn't really understand kind of where it was coming from because for me it it, it, <laughs> it it sounds terrible to say it but I thought it was quite an empowering film for women but, but to be perfectly honest um, I, I think that Amy Dunn is um, an icon of uh, popular culture I think that um, <laughs> She is a legend and um, I, I love her, but <laughs> no, I, I, I can understand where that kind of view came from. And I think it is something that's actually dogged Fincher throughout his career is this idea that he either doesn't care about female characters or doesn't really understand how to use them. I wouldn't, I mean, he doesn't write his own scripts. So, you know, it's not that he is writing bad characters. It's just, I think that, they're often kind of misunderstood. And I think certainly in um, Fight Club, there were a lot of claims about Marla Singer being this kind of... Um, I, I don't really know how to word it. I guess um, like like a kind of manic pixie dream girl, but like the, the goth version of that. And then in um, The Social Network, obviously Rooney Mara's character is presented as this like, you know she dumps Mark Zuckerberg and that's the whole reason we get Facebook, which is a very like kind of um, simplistic version of events. And also like she just, she's a lot of people at the time were saying like, she's the best thing in the film. She's only in it for two, two minutes, which is, you know, 
I think I think it's easy now to look back at Rooney Mara and say like, oh my god, she should have had loads more screen time in in a social network. But obviously, it was 2011. I guess no one really knew or cared who um, who she was. Whereas now, it's very easy to say that. But anyway, back to Gone Girl. <laughs> um, you know, it is basically. I could, I, at a very simple level, it's a story about a woman getting revenge on her cheating husband. And you can understand why some people would see that as um, problematic. And I think some men would kind of see it as a, like, oh my God, women are all crazy bitches story. Um, but for me, I never really viewed it that way because everyone in this film is terrible. Like, every single character is just horrific. You don't sympathize with any of them really you kind of all, all think they deserve each other from nick and amy dunn to the police to the mistress to nick's sister margot they're all just like horrible people and while reading the novel it's kind of you're you're investing a lot more time in it and that's why it could kind of like feel heavy because you're just with these terrible people for like i don't know how long it takes you to read a book Two and a half hours is the perfect amount of time to spend with these awful people. You kind of, you go in, you watch them all like fuck each other over and then you think, wow, I'm really glad that wasn't, that isn't my life. <laughs> so yeah, I've been, I, the, that would be my, um, my kind of um, riposte against those claims. I think it is just a story about terrible people doing terrible things to each other. <laughs> and to think about it in the, the, its position within the Fincher filmography is, I think, quite delicious in retrospect because after well we might come to this later after a run of films where he was a bit of a provocateur and he liked going up to the edge of something very problematic and 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 sometimes putting a toe over it in fight club in seven um he then almost went through a little bit of a phase where it was more serious a bit more prestige oscar contention films uh, you know, of course, the peak of that being Social Network, but Z Zodiac and Benjamin Button certainly feed into that. And Gone Girl was really him messing with us as a filmmaker <laughs> over and over again and really not giving us a, a nice wrapped-up theme or a nice wrapped-up character arc that we could all get behind and finish our popcorn and go home. So I, I think that he as a filmmaker is so fascinating. that now, And now we'll... we'll talk on another episode about Mank, but it's just fascinating to see where that fits into this arc. Before we finish on Gone Girl, though, I'd like to talk about Ben Affleck. Yes. Um, not just because, Hannah, I, I, I went back and found your tweet where you quoted from the director's commentary, which is all Fincher talking about Ben Affleck. Um, is he good in this? Um, I, I, okay, there's a lot of debate about Ben Affleck in this film, whether Ben Affleck is good or whether Ben Affleck is Ben Affleck in Gone Girl. Um, I, I am a Ben Affleck apologist and I actually think he's quite a good actor who makes terrible decisions. But I think Gone Girl is like his his masterpiece. It's his, um, you know, his Citizen Kane. <laughs> I think it's, um, it really is like, it plays to his strengths. I think the, the quotes from the commentary that you're talking about was Fincher kind of talking about why he cast Ben Affleck and why Ben Affleck was so good in the role. And it's all the kind of those four screenshots um, that I tweeted about. It's all like highlighting how duplicitous and sneaky Ben Affleck is as a, as a human being. And, you know, I think the character that he was cast as is this golden boy turned kind of like 
downtrodden, focused on his glory days, alpha male type character. And I think it very much plays into the kind of persona of Ben Affleck that had developed throughout the kind of um, National Enquirer gossip rags and whatnot. But his strengths as well. I mean, Ben Affleck is kind of at his best when he is playing that all-American guy who is just trying to, like, get his life on track. And this film is, like, it takes takes that, but, like you're saying, it really, like, it messes with us. It messes with our expectations. It messes with the kind of these tropes of the good all-American Missouri boy. And I, I really think, like, it's... It, it's a performance that I couldn't see anyone else doing. I can't. I I find it very hard to imagine anyone else in this role than Ben Affleck. I think he was so brilliantly cast, and it really is. I imagine like a a sign of kind of good directing and kind of good casting director. I don't know if he was always like the first choice for this role. I I actually should probably mm-hmm. read up on that because he he you know he'd never worked with Fincher before, and Fincher does kind of like to um like to have his favourites, and I can like. I could see someone like Brad Pitt in this, but I think if it was someone that we liked a bit more within Hollywood, then, you know, the the, the kind of the character dynamics wouldn't work. I think it kind of had to be someone that people were already like a little bit ready to hate for, <laughs> in order to uh, in order to balance out Amy Dunn, who, you know, is the ultimate kind of like horrible female character, you know, it, it, and you know, we, we talk about Ben Affleck, but also Rosamund Pike gives this like outstanding performance and to have gone from like, I, I think before this, she was really only kind of known, she'd been in a Bond film, but it was really like UK audiences who knew who she was. And this was like her big kind of Hollywood moment. And she got paid absolutely nothing for it by uh, by the Academy. I, I really think she was robbed of an Oscar. Not that Academy Awards mean anything. But yeah, I think it is like... I I wish Ben Affleck got more roles like this. I think it was a, an incredible act of um, self-deprecation on his part to take this role, because it's not a flattering role. Uh, I don't think he comes off particularly well. I remember a tweet going around at the time, or like just after, saying like, oh, Ben Affleck doesn't understand Gone Girl. He doesn't know, like, why he was casting Gone Girl. He just kind of turned up on set. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think Ben Affleck knows exactly why he was casting Gone Girl. <laughs> I think, I think it, this was him kind of, again, like, messing with, messing with us as an audience. It's a kind of a bit of a knowing wink on his part as well as Finch's. There's one quote in the in the director's commentary, I believe, or maybe it's in another profile I read with Fincher, where he says that because they put into the script that Ben Affleck's character has um, a villainous chin or an untrustworthy chin. He then went straight to his agents and said, please cast me in a role with a heroic chin. <laughs> and that causes, that causes the Zack Snyder Batman universe. <laughs> I think the bit which really sells it for me, and it, and it sort of speaks to what Hannah was just saying, is um, the, the scene or the moment where he gives the first press conference and mm-hmm. he has to sort of give this convincing, kind of sympathetic smile to the uh, to the television cameras and he gives this Ben Affleck <laughs> gives this amazing perfect like shit-eating grin and for someone who's like so media trained and is mm. you know so used to having his picture taken I just think it's it's astonishing that he manages to give that you know that that grin so convincingly because it's not it's obviously not his like natural smile it's something he's, <laughs> he's worked on for this character but it is it is just so perfect, and I think you you you're, you're dead right, Hannah, in terms of him being someone who's 
you know, he is likable and charming in his way, but he's he is inherently like untrustworthy as well. <laughs> Whereas someone like Brad Pitt, you're like always instantly on his side. And I think Fincher and, and Affleck as well must have known that the baggage that he carries and that people, you know, have this preconception of him. And and yeah, he, he works perfectly. And it feeds into that final act quite well, whether he would actually be aboard by the Amy Dunn's big plan or whether he would also be a little bit respectful of it and tempted to the flame. <laughs> and you need, you need that ambiguity in this role if you had somebody. And I, I wonder if Ben Affleck would have... I do wonder if Brad Pitt would have done as, as good a job. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This would be a good point actually to move on to your pick, Adam, which is Brad Pitt and then some, right? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, so I've I've gone for a film. I would not say, by the way, th- this is anywhere near being my favourite Fincher <laughs> film. Um, I think it's probably kind of middle of the pack for me, which I suppose fittingly it's sort of almost midway through his filmography as well. Um, but yeah, it's a, a sort of interesting story with this one. I saw it when I was on a trip in um, America and I was up in this little mountain town and went to the local cinema like the week it opened. I think this was like back when films used to come out in America still a few months before they did in the UK. And um, yeah, I went, went to see it and there was probably only half a dozen people in the uh, in the screening. It's quite a late night uh, showing and I was the only one left there at the end. Um, <laughs> everyone else had left i think i think probably due to the runtime it was well past midnight by the time it by the time it wrapped up um um and of course it was benjamin button and it was a, it was a weird one because it was a film which i quite liked at the time and i felt that that lukewarm reception of the people in that in that screening with me was 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 very much the way that generally audiences felt towards the film even though it seemed to get quite good um you know critical reception it was a film made on quite hefty budget actually for Fincher's standard at, at that time and it'd come off the back of a period in his career where I don't think he quite had the, the prestige attached to his name 
you know, it was a few, um, you know, quite, it was quite a while really after Fight Club, after Seven and all these films. So his previous film Zodiac, which I mean, comparatively is a much more low key affair and much smaller film. And I think it made a bit of money at the box office, but again, nowhere near what Benjamin Button did. So it's an interesting one to look back on because I, I remember really liking it. I hadn't revisited it until this week when I decided to, to kind of pick it for that reason for the podcast, just to sort of, you know, with, with Zodiac and Gone Girl and some of the other more recent films, um, as well as things like Seven and um, Fight Club. I've, I've seen them all so many times. I know them kind of inside out. And with Benjamin Button, there were there were kind of scenes and images and moments which I'd kind of remembered and couldn't quite put them together in in in, in kind of one single image in my head and in terms of where they fit into the film. And I think it is very much a film of moments. Um, I think it shows, in a way, it shows kind of the best and the, and the worst of Fincher. You know, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the story, it's very, very loosely based on this F. Scott Fitzgerald story. But it was a script or a screenplay which was knocking around, and actually not dissimilar to Mank, it was, it was kind of knocking around Hollywood for quite a long time. Various people were attached to it. I think initially Steven Spielberg was, was going to do it, and then he went off and made something called Jurassic Park, <laughs> which I don't know if you've heard of. And so that worked out quite well for him. But, you know, loads of different people were attached to this. I think Charlie Kaufman had a go at writing the screenplay at one point. Ron Howard was attached to it as well, which, you know, I think we've, we've all been saved uh, fr- from that one. But, you know, F- Fincher, he, I think he is a surprising choice, really, for this one. And if you look at his whole filmography now, you've got these slightly newer batch of films. I don't know whether you'd group Zodiac and um, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo but certainly we've talked about Gone Girl and Zodiac and this idea of the relationship between the media and celebrity and criminals and and you've got the the kind of earlier stage of his career and I, and I think this is a weird anomaly almost and it and it's this big sweeping American classic epic and you, you've got this almost like Forrest Gumpian figure in the center of it played brilliantly by, by Brad Pitt and it, it's a film even now, I think Kate Blanchett says something at the time, which, which is quite interesting about her being attracted and wanting to play the role and being interested by the film in that it was a very sentimental story from one of the most cynical kind of directors that she knows that's out there. And I think that kind of nails it. You know, it's this really quite kind of maudlin story in places. And Fincher comes at it from that point of view I think you know he, he actually does park his cynicism quite a lot and he delivers these these very beautiful moments I think sometimes it kind of tips over into being a little bit too sentimental but it is a film of some really poignant and, and beautiful images certainly some of the most absorbing and arresting images I think in his entire filmography I mean there's a couple which stand out and and actually a few which I'd kind of forgotten more like little glimpses and flashes of things that you see like at the end where there's a kind of wide shot of Kate Blanchett holding this small boy's hand. Just stuff like that. I mean, even now talking about it, I get a bit of a chill. And it's the really, you know, affecting image and, and story. But certainly one which um, I think hasn't maybe held up as well as some of his others. Yeah, I, I will say the final sequence of the film, of course, Benjamin Button is ageing in reverse. So there's a point where Brad Pitt's character, Benjamin Button, and... Kate Blanchett's character are essentially the same age. They meet in their for you know, their, their ages meet in their forties, and after that, where it's this slow slip into youth, and then 
dementia and everything else is very effective and it really nails this theme this visual theme that it's been coming to for the entire film that you can slip in and out of rhythm with other people in your life and also that old age is like a reversion back into childhood in many ways and it's very beautiful and affecting my problem is that it takes two hours to get there I think that's the problem most people have with it. And actually, it's a film which I didn't appreciate for those reasons mm. you've just given maybe at the time. And now, as I, as I get a bit older and, you know, I've actually experienced a relative, you know, being diagnosed with dementia and seeing that. And I think it is a film which will kind of gain potency and poignancy the older I get and, and, and the kind of more times I revisit it. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it, it is a film mm. about time and the passing of time. And it's bookended quite neatly by this story about um this this kind of french architect making this clock in a train station and the clock runs backwards and quite a kind of fitting metaphor at the end by the fact that it's replaced by a digital clock which runs forward and that's that's kind of a nice kind of signal i think from fincher about his his own feelings towards kind of filmmaking as a craft and you know he's always, he's always someone who's kind of embraced digital mm. technology but there's something about like the mode of storytelling which i think he kind of returns to a little bit with mank and you know how films like this are being kind of usurped by you know much more kind of slicker effects driven mm. machines you don't really get medium sized movies like this anymore i know it's made on a plus 100 million dollar budget and a lot of that is down to the the special effects work but it is kind of, it feels like a bit of a throwback, even though it's only just over 10 years old. It feels like it was made a lot mm. longer now, a lot more further back. And, and yeah, it really feels like a film which you, you don't really get many films made like this anymore. And you, you talk about films of this sort of great epic sweep where you almost forget whole chunks of it and focus in on these moments. When I rewatched it last week, I'd forgotten that there's a good 45 minutes of Jared Harris topless singing in Irish, in an Irish accent. Um, which that if that could be lopped out and it's just focusing <laughs> on Kate Blanchett and, and Brad Pitt, I think I'd love this film a bit more. Um, Hannah, what's your take on Benjamin Button? So I remember watching it a very long time ago and being kind of meh about it. And then I watched it again last night and I was similarly meh about it. Um, it's not... I So to touch on something that um, Adam kind of mentioned... I my hot take is that Benjamin Button is just Forrest Gump for people who think that they're too good for Forrest Gump. So it's you know I I I'm not a fan of this film. I um, I think a lot of that is to do with reasons we've already um, we've already touched on. I think if we could chop out all the stuff about World War Two and U boats and submarines and sailing then I'd probably have a lot more time for it. I think if it just if it stopped pretending it was anything other than a love story. Um, it would be a much better film you know it's nearly three hours and that's like a considerable investment of time for me particularly when for most of it kind of nothing is happening I wouldn't have any problem with it being three hours if it wasn't also kind of this sort of very sentimental like gauzy pace and like overwrought score which is like nails on a chalkboard to me it feels like a parody of a Terence Malick film at times like it's you know just a lot of like people looking off into the middle distance I, I sound like I'm being, like horrible about this film it's it, it's a very competent piece of filmmaking but one thing as well like I noticed watching it was that the special effects on this film have not aged well 
And I think that's part of the reason it feels like it was made a long time ago, because, you know, special effects have come on so much since this film was made. It just looks like quite bad. And, you know, all the scenes were at the beginning where Brad Pitt is interacting with young um, Elle Fanning, is it, that plays a little little Kate Blanchett, um, <laughs> just felt like very, very strange and kind of like uncanny valley to me. It was even more unnerving than the idea that like this 70 year old man is actually a seven year old boy who's like got a crush on this seven year old girl. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know, just for me it's, I, I would love to kind of know what it was about that story, that F. Scott Fitzgerald story that kind of made him want to do this as a project. Cause it feels like a real outlier in terms of his themes as well. You know, up until this point, he'd really been kind of owning the thriller corner of Hollywood. And then he just comes out with, yeah, here's my um, sweeping fantasy romance about a guy who ages backwards. It felt like a real, like, what? <laughs> what a moment. And I think... Um, I, I am definitely like one of those audience members who would have walked out of that little mountaintop cinema. I think I would have um, not had a lot of time for this. Apparently, he never read the um, the, the, the oh, really? Cheryl story. He just read the Eric Roth screenplay. That makes it even worse. So I think, I think it was... <laughs> Like if he got some like deep seated connection to to the source material, maybe I could understand it a bit more. But no, he just he just loved the script. Wow, uh, good for him, I guess. I think that I think that's all that's all fair. I mean, I I can't really dispute any of that. I think it's it's a tricky one in that I think if you were to cut anything out and there is a lot that you could you know put forward to be trimmed. I don't think the film would really work at all. It, it it kind of hinges on this idea of like time passing and the fact that you know their lives intersect in these in this quite protracted way and you know it it, it it's almost like you kind of have to go through the, those scenes for the for the scenes where him and Kate Blanchett are together and actually there's there's a really nice parallel earlier with with him and Tilda Swinton as well and that's very much about how you know fleeting human relationships can be and how you just happen to be passing by with someone else at a certain time and they can they can impact your life in so many ways and i think yeah th those moments are all the more sweet for the fact you've had to go through like a sweary irish jared <laughs> harris just kind of drunk out of his mind on rum and and all, all, of the, all of those scenes like you do it's a bit of a slog at times but it, it, it does pay off i think yeah i suppose it has to be this epic cradle to cradle narrative it does f fall into that Hannah, you hit on something there where the sort of rules of the world are a little bit ill-defined. And re-watching it recently with my partner, we were pausing it every half an hour saying, right, okay, wait a second. Is he actually a 70-year-old man in a seven-year-old body? <laughs> no, his brain is like a seven-year-old, so it's not a strange relationship. It's just the fact that he looks really old. And then likewise later, it's like, how old is he now in the 60s when they're like <laughs> dancing around in their pad dressed like, you know, like their French New Wave characters listening to the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? It's like... It's, it, it's like they're meant to be in their 30s 40s 19 they said 1920s here yeah anyway it's it's one of those where you can't help but pause it and try and really figure it out and once you do that it does start to fail as a pure emotional experience maybe i think i, I love the fact that it's not you know they don't really explain his no. condition at no point there's, there's no sort of um seen with a kind of doctor or like a room full of medical experts who are trying to ascertain what his condition is and how they may be able to treat him it's all it's all very just taken at face value and 
actually, I think one of the one of the best um, relationships in the film is that with his mother, um, played by Taraji P Henson, and she she's really really I think underrated in this film, and I, and I think she was um, Oscar nominated at the time, but I, I think people tend to focus much more on obviously like Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton, and I think his relationship with his mother is really really fascinating here. Obviously, you never really see apart apart from the kind of very quick moment where she she dies in childbirth you don't really see his his mm. real mother um at all in this film so you know a lot, a lot of the film does come down to that relationship and how i guess how I, I, maybe it's a, a bit of the kind of nature versus nurture argument but how those very early earliest like formative relationships kind of set you on a certain course in your life we've we've inadvertently picked you know quite left field choices perhaps but it is interesting adam that you and i have chosen transitional films in a way as you said adam like this feels like an odd fish in the fincher filmography because then he then goes and finds a whole new track afterwards with the social network he starts working with trent Reznor and atticus ross that firms up a certain tone and vibe for all his films subsequently i've picked panic room from 2002 which is another transitional film this is coming off his first handful of films well Let's let's ignore Alien Three for this analogy. But when he makes Seven, <laughs> Seven, the game and Fight Club, he sets himself up as this as a bad boy filmmaker, thrill in in the thriller vein, as you said, Hannah, almost a modern day Hitchcock in the way that he has these big high concept themes where it's all about the one line aspect of the story, but then so many great sequences. Panic Room is the ultimate version of that where it's high concept in the purest sense because it's all the majority of it is about a panic room in a house but it's transitional in the sense that it's of the era where you could raise this mid middle budget mid high budget to make an enclosed thriller where the majority of that budget would go towards actual physical practical effects where they actually build an entire set that is the size of this very nice new york apartment so he can then play with his camera within it. Transitional too, because it's the first time that he fully moves into a digital space. You know, of course, Fight Club has all sorts of digital trickery in it, but this is one where he'd done, I think it's like two thirds of the film, he'd done previs on beforehand. So really, we've not really touched on the fact that David Fincher has this reputation as a person who does 200 takes just to get a car pulling into a driveway. But this is the film where he develops that reputation where he'd pre-visualized two thirds of the film. And then really the job on set was just to light things correctly and have the camera just enact what he had in his head. So you have crazy things like an amazing long take at the beginning of the film where the camera just swoops around this building doing these impossible digital moves. Another one where the camera goes along a kitchen counter, like through the curve of a tap insane uh, uh, visual flourishes but at the heart of it it is this enclosed old-fashioned thriller of Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart as a kid you know um, with a home invasion with these thieves coming in to try and get money that's in the panic room that they're hiding in and it's so simple but so under Finch's eye complicated <laughs> and really thrilling and fun and it's his last I think maybe we could say this his last purely popcorn film 
because almost all of his other films since then have different aspirations. Even The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Gone Girl, which are twisty thrillers, have a very different vibe to Panic Room. And I find it such a fun film um, for many reasons, but also then reading about the troubled production afterwards. It was in the New York Times profile that came out last week where where Fincher does not like this movie, but his, his pal Steven Soderbergh loves it <laughs> and loves to torment him, saying, mm. I've just rewatched panic room again and sends him screen grabs <laughs> i love that the so idea much. of bullying your friend by doing that is just hilarious to me do you think in future years like finch is gonna start screen capping the laundromat and say dude what were you thinking with meryl streep and the rubber mask like i really i really love that idea <laughs> but it's the fact that steven sodomo is coming from a position of actually loving the film it's yeah, he yeah. says that it's the finch he watches so many times as he should. It's a, it's a good movie. I mean, I know Finch is a perfectionist, but like, come on, dude, it's a good movie. I mean, calm down. <laughs> Do you two like this movie? What's your take on it, Adam? I like it a lot. I, I rewatched it, um, not actually for this podcast, but just over the, over the summer during lockdown, watched it. Um, liked it a lot more than I remembered. I think it is it's quite a modest film in, in a lot of ways, but it's really... It's just really tight and really effective. It is it is quite a kind of old school like Hitchcockian thriller. I love this like single location and 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 the way he uses that. I love the whole like architecture of of the set and you know the way it's all mapped out. Like it's one of those films which in lesser hands I think could be a bit of a mm-hmm. mess and actually could be quite tedious. But it, it, it's really to Fincher's credit that he's so in control of every. I mean he is obviously as we've said a bit of a control freak and a perfectionist, but you know, the fact that every element of it is so finely tuned and you know exactly where you are with it at all times. And actually, you're not too concerned in terms of like where it's going necessarily, but it's very, yeah, it's a really fun, tight, well-executed um And it's a, it's a perfect example of Fincher as a filmmaker with a vision elevating a script that is a David Kep script from the, the spec script era where he got paid millions of dollars for this idea and really you could imagine this being sort of video shop fodder if it weren't for that ambition this came out the same year this came out the same year as um phone right. booth and and i think there's there's some parallels and someone like joel schumacher you know I, I can imagine him doing a film like panic room and i think i can imagine fincher doing a film like phone booth even at this time it was there was a bit of an appetite for these as you say like dvd fodder type uh, blockbusters and uh, and yeah, and I think what Fincher brings to it is something which I think there's very few Hollywood directors that can kind of do this, that can match this. And there's a lot of imitators out there. That's the other thing. It's like easy to think of Fincher as being someone with a lot of peers, but I think actually there's a lot of people who've kind of followed in his footsteps. And I think placing this within the arc of his career is really fascinating. Of course, now that he's 11 films in, Panic Room lands right at the middle. And it's, as we said... Seven and Fight Club, Zodiac and The Social Network loom very large over the rest. I do think that this period where he was the twisty-turny, high-concept director with particularly The Game and Panic Room, they can be overlooked a little bit, probably because they don't have that prestige attached to it or the, or the controversy attached to them, but um, are both worth re-watching. And also the fact that he, I don't think he looks back very fondly on The Game either. Mm. Because that's the that's the one with Mike, Michael Douglas um, being pulled into a 
the game. The I, game I, is brilliant. Really, I love the game. Yeah. I, 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 do, I, I think it's quite fun as well. I only watched it for the first time this year and uh, at the beginning of this year and I was blown away. I was I was annoyed it had taken me so long to watch it. I think it's a great film. Oh. I uh, I really do. And I hate Sean Penn. So for, for, for me to enjoy that film despite Sean Penn is quite something. But I was reading about the production history of Panic Room um, for this uh, for this podcast and it's one of those films where I definitely remember seeing bits of it on TV because I remembered the bit at the end with Forrest Whitaker standing in the backyard and like that I think that that is one of the kind of if if I was doing a montage of David Fincher's career like that scene would be like the Bonds like blowing in the wind would be one of the things I would include I think it's a really brilliant scene which kind of sums up the film um, mm. but um, I was fascinated to learn that originally Nicole Kidman was going to play Jodie Foster's role I thought that was so interesting that he had to he basically like when Kidman dropped out he reshaped the whole thing and made Jodie Foster's character much more able to fight back I guess um in the original Kidman was meant to be a kind of like helpless Manhattan housewife whereas Foster's very like part of the joy I get out of this film is seeing like this incredibly competent woman like getting herself out of scrapes and being very level-headed in what a situation which I'm sure most of us would never be that competent but she is like she always has a plan I think that's kind of one of the most rewarding things for me about the film is like it never treats her as inferior because she's a woman or something she's perfectly capable of like not only handling her own but it not being an issue you know it's just kind of yeah look at this badass woman being able to go up against these three well two psychopaths and one mild-mannered um locksmith <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good counterexample to what we talked about earlier about how he has this reputation of being a very macho mm. masculine filmmaker it's very rare that we have mother-daughter thrillers like this yeah and the relationship that they have Jodie Foster and, and Case Stew, um is it is is so central to the film and it treats it seriously and with sensitivity as well particularly the growth of Jodie Foster's character where in the opening scene where she's being shown round the house she's almost i mean jodie foster has the fact that she's very small so she doesn't she can't command a room but then by the end she's taken charge i must make a note that case Jew, who has a sort of i think it's it's meant to be diabetes but they never really state what it is that she has at one point where she's got like high blood pressure i mean she's trying to level it out she recites the capital um back catalogue of the beatles so the the u.s albums including mm. yesterday and today etc so as the pronounced beatles fan in the room that was something i <laughs> i appreciated and a nice little connection to benjamin button there of course it's exactly, uh, what, yeah. what's going on with fincher and the beatles is this like a thing i don't know about is he like a huge Beatles stan he is interesting isn't he he has all of these little nods and references so the ending of the film as you say the bombs blowing in the wind is a mm. reference to the end of the killing the uh the uh, the early kubrick film um he has hitchcock references peppered throughout um he he but he's not tarantino he's not the magpie yeah. is it's he? not like it's, it's not clearly like, always there when you watch a tarantino film your immediate reaction is yes tarantino i enjoyed that film too whereas fincher i think it's a lot more subtle and you can you can watch these films 10 times over and still get something from them they do have like i mean this year i, I think i've rewatched all of his films apart from Alien 3 because who's got time for that but I rewatched Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and I still got so much from it on a rewatch I think he is like he manages to do that rare thing of like always keeping me 
entertain even with something i've seen like 10 times over mm. so girl the dragon tattoo is the one i've not rewatched since release i wasn't a big fan of it on first watch really? so would you recommend that as one to go back on i would definitely i think it's fascinating as well to think about rudy mara's career because he obviously mm. fincher cast her in that having worked with her on social network for two scenes and i remember at the time there was such a kind of to do about them even making girl with the dragon tattoo because of it being so recent after the Norwegian edition. And there's a lot of rightful controversy about American directors remaking foreign language films for a Hollywood audience. But I think this is one of the rare examples where not only is it a great remake, it's maybe better than the original, in my opinion. I think it's it really is like it's definitely worth a rewatch. I think it's another great like example of his thriller chops but also like he can make a film about a strong female character <laughs> i really i i have no have no truck with the misogynist claims i i really think it's yeah it's a great movie and it's a shame that really mara doesn't really do kind of that sort of thing anymore not to give a uh, girl and to too too much airtime but i know that there was a lot of like controversy around like the making of that film and apparently she had a really like hard time making it and he pushed her really hard but the performance that she gives, and the, and to be fair, the performance that Daniel Craig gives, I think are so kind of lived in and they really both like completely disappear into this twisted world that the film is set. I really, yeah, I would highly recommend a rewatch or a watch if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, his his relationship with actors is is fascinating. As, as I say, Brad Pitt is clearly a fan, a returning <laughs> actor. Um, but I think even Brad Pitt refers to Fincher as you know, using his actors almost as cattle. Mm. Um, Jodie Foster, I think, at the time said that she'd never worked as hard as on Panic Room, where she'd be doing you know, hundreds of takes of certain lines. Uh, because, of course, since everything around the actors is so fixed, the actors have to nail things time and again. Was and it Jake Gyllenhaal who with... said about, yeah, about Zodiac as well? Yeah, he, about having to do 100 takes and it being exhausting. <laughs> so maybe when he works with actors from different sorts of traditions of acting... I know that I read that in Mank, Gary Oldman having to redo scenes over and over again, and he's somebody who bridges both the theatrical tradition but also a more emotional method tradition as well. He's a fascinating filmmaker, and that probably goes all the way back to Hitchcock too, and, you know, using the actors like cattle. It's fascinating. For all of that, he manages to get some pretty amazing performances out of people. I mean, we're talking about things like The Social Network and... Go with the dragon tattoo. I think they're some of those actors, respective actors, have strongest ever performances. And even with, you know, with Panic Room, maybe not one of Jodie Foster's most memorable, but it's certainly building on a legacy and again a preconception of her as an actor. And I think going on the um, you know strong female character theme, as, as you were saying, Hannah, like you can't watch this and not think of Silence mm. of the Lambs for me. Like it's, it's almost like, a, a, you know, the tables have been turned and that she's kind of trapped in this box type room now, but you watch that and you, and you know that she's going to be able to get out of it because she's, she's like Clarice Starling, right? She's, you know, she's going to find a way she's going to handle it. I think same way as we're talking about Ben Affleck, like, you know, he's a bit of a douchebag, but he's kind of all right, <laughs> really. And, I, th I think Fincher is a, is a very, very canny caster of, of actors and knows exactly, like, you know, the right kind of person, the right kind of persona to, to put in, in each and of these And sometimes that, that results in maybe an actor giving their single great performance in a film. So I, Jesse Eisenberg, for example, we, when he's in Social Network, we think, oh, is this something we've never seen in him before? And he's never really found that again since... I would say, like, most of that maybe. cast... 
most of that cast, like, they're one good performer. Like, I mean, um, Army Hammer, I think, like, Call Me By Your Name, yeah, but, like, he's so good as the Winklevoss twins. <laughs> and um, Andrew Garfield as well, I think, like... Andrew his, Garfield, yeah. His, his, he's remarkable in that film. And we must say Justin Timberlake as well, even though, you know, like... Justin Timberlake, he's he he's still pretty good. Good value, I think. Well, I know we've not spoken about the social network on here, but that's one I rewatched last week, and it is even better in retrospect. You think, <laughs> oh, surely it'll seem quaint seeing where Facebook goes ten years on from the social network release in 2010, but no, it, all of the rotten seeds are planted in there. But also, <laughs> as you say, every actor from that film was then rammed down our throats in more films to come yeah. andrew garfield even caleb landry jones who's there in just like a blink and miss scene he's in the he's in the house party that gets raided that justin timberlake oh, puts yeah. on uh, late, late <laughs> in the show and he's just there in the background you're like oh even you went and had a whole career after this <laughs> <laughs> and another one that features a beatles song i remember again like when i saw that film in the cinema oh, yeah. um mind totally blown by that ending i i was just like you're gonna drop baby you're a rich man on me now like i just i you know the, I, something we we picked three quite serious films um but we talked about it a little bit ago i think like david fincher's sense of humor is is vastly underrated i think he's an incredibly funny filmmaker and re-watching gone girl the other night you know there's a wonderful moment with ben affleck where he's doing the um he's solving the riddles for his anniversary treasure hunt and he reads it out loud and then he thinks about it for a second and his little face lights up and he goes, I know this one. And it's such a like, such a funny moment of like this kind of dumb, this dumb guy, like finally like realizing something. It's just, you know, I really, I, I know this comes across, I think in his interview with David from the magazine, he, he has an incredible sense of humor. I think he really is like, I'd love to see him do like a kind of screwball comedy. There's elements of that in Mank for sure, but like, I'd love oh, to yeah. see him just do something that is like pure funny even benjamin button you've got those little vignettes with the guy who keeps getting struck by <laughs> lightning and it's done in this like sepia tinted like buster keaton you know that that is so funny that, that, i mean it's a, it, it kind of like you know put, puts the brakes on the on the film pretty hard every time that comes in but it, you can kind of forgive it just because mm -hmm. it's so delightful <laughs> And after the second or third time, you know, you, you're kind of waiting for the fifth and sixth. And of course, seven. like, I think, I think people forget about that sense of humour and take his, he's such a good interview, you know, watching him, hearing him, reading him, being interviewed. But some people might take the things he says a bit too seriously. Yeah. He's just having a laugh with us. This is why I'm, I'm kind of sceptical about this cancel culture thing, because I think he might have said this is a joke and now it's like a very serious like thing. But, well, I mean, we, we should mention as well like, the, the fabulous story from Fight Club, since we haven't spoken about Fight Club, um, about the line in the script that he was told to take out by the studio and he replaced it with um, what has become like an iconic line in the, uh, the annals of Fincher history, which is when Marla Singer sleeps with uh, Brad Pitt. And afterwards, she says, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school, <laughs> which I'm sure will get bleaked on this podcast. But yeah, that was a pure like Fincherism that uh, I believe annoyed the studio even more. But they couldn't take it out because it was too late by that point. <laughs> I, th I think I think he had said that he ag he agreed that was the one thing in the script he would change <laughs> as long as they agreed whatever it was to keep in what he changed it to. And he made it worse. <laughs> so David Fincher. So we will be talking about Mank on a future episode. You can also pick up the issue as well, which has lots of Mank-related content in there. I still can't get over that title. That's a terrible <laughs> title. It's not good. You have to it? hear a lot of characters say Mank all the way through that. It just doesn't work in English. Maybe we should adopt 
1940s American Hollywood accents when we say it. Um, Adam, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about David Fincher. It's been a while since we've spoken. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's been it. a nice, like, a nice tonic for uh, lockdown two. Talking about David Fincher, I think he's he's a good lockdown filmmaker to get into as well because you know not very many films, which is the ideal. Not very many films. Would we recommend Mindhunter afterwards? Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. I I was such a skeptic with Mindhunter. I didn't like. I watched the first few episodes when it came out, didn't like it, and then came back to it about a year ago, and really ate my words. I think it's it's fantastic. I he said like. He said in recent interviews for Mank that he's probably not going to make a third season, which makes me really sad because I think it's it's a really, really great, not only like Fincher show, but like a great crime show. We don't get a lot of those nowadays. It's all very like hokey, true crime, but Mindhunter really holds up. Uh, are they making more of it or is he just not doing it? I think he said uh, it's unlikely to get a season three. Because there's like a whole, there's a whole plot there that is just like dangling. Yeah. <laughs> The poor, the, the, what is it? The, um, They've been teasing that the, for two the, seasons. BTK killer. Yeah. <laughs> We're never going to get there. <laughs> so 11 films, the TV series Mindhunter, and the music videos too, I'd recommend. They're definitely part of the story, particularly if you go and read Sydney Urbanek's amazing article, digging into the relationship between Fincher and Madonna, um, which is well worth a read because we think that he starts in the late 90s, but actually there's a whole story before that, all part of the big Fincher fable. Listeners, if you have any thoughts on David Fincher, I'm sure many of you have many thoughts. Let us know at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter, truthandmovies at LWLies.com via email. And of course, there's also the comment section at LWLies.com slash podcast. Adam, Hannah, thank you so much for talking with me today. I've been Michael Leader. Listen out for our Mac podcast soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 